Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. And this is our review of Paths of Glory, starring Kurt Douglas, Ralph Meeker, Adolphe Mejou, Georgie McCready, Wayne Morris, and Richard Anderson. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, released in 1957 on a budget of $900,000 to wide critical acclaim, was nominated even for some top awards back in its day, an anti-war war film. And I guess it's time to talk about now, this won't be the first time we broach the subject of war and Kubrick. In fact, it's one of his most consistent muses. Oh yeah, big time. I mean, <laughs> a lot of his movies do revolve around one form or another, uh, what happens when guys kill each other? Indeed. And I think it's neat to uh, put ourselves in time of the context. 1957 was post-World War II, obviously, was Korean War time. But we were doing a lot of war movies at the time. Most of them were your John Wayne and Kirk Douglas, rah-rah Americana, kick the Germans and the Japs back to the Stone Age kind of movies. I mean, that you go watch them, and I mean, there's some really good films from that time, too. Some of them serve as pseudo-propaganda, and some of them are, again, those Americanized Western versions of World War II and things like that. But World War I is the conflict I've always felt like kind of got lost in cinematic history. I mean, there's there's all quiet on the Western front and this one. And I can't think of two terribly many world <laughs> war one films. Yeah. I mean, there's about 7 million world war two movies for every one world war one movie. Exactly. And I, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why, because the more I find out about world war one, the more I sound like the more it's, it sounds like it's ripe for, for movies. Even just watching this movie, yeah. I can't help but think, well, why didn't they make, why didn't like John Wayne, Wayne make a movie set in the trenches or, uh, or something, and yeah, I I can only venture the guess of this is that in in our world, particularly Western cinema, the United States of America got involved in World War One very very late in that conflict. If you look through history, we really weren't in it that long. But the French and the British and the Germans and everyone they were involved in it for many more years than we were. So part of it, I think, is the fact that America just wasn't in it as much. And, you know, we were living in a society that was not a global, knowledgeable society. I mean, you knew as much about the people in Germany as you probably knew about the people the state over. There was no way to really know any of this stuff. It's not like the age we live in now where if I want to know what it's like to live and work in Japan, I can go on YouTube and find 500 videos of people telling me what that experience is like, <laughs> you know, which you couldn't you couldn't do that 10 years ago, much less, you know, back in 1957. So I think that part of it is there's a disconnect just in terms of geography and, and also in time that America spent in it. You got to also think about too, in world war two, America's political machine and media machine had grown to such a, a much larger rate than what it was in the 19 teens. 
that it, the story was being told in our media on a daily basis, whereas World War One, we were lucky to get reports, you know, weeks apart sometimes. This is a different time in some things. And I'll, I'll also say this, too. World War One and the real crux of like wars like Vietnam and things like that I, I share a lot in common in that they are not these large waves of sustained action like the Battle of Midway and Pearl Harbor and stuff like that. They are these dirty, gritty, in the trenches, throwing grenades at each other's feet, cutting each other up with knives, throwing rocks at each other. I mean, it was, it was nasty. You know, and I think for Americans in particular, Vietnam kind of replaced the nasty war in our culture from World War One, and I, I do think that's one of the, for cinematically, is one of the reasons that we've got you know a, a five million Vietnam War movies to every World War One movie too. Yeah. Oh yeah, and like one of the, yeah, and one of the reasons I am fascinated by World War One is it's you know it's the first like proper major war when we're talking about you know these heavy machines of of of, of tanks and planes and they're like and yeah and now all wars are horrific there's no question about it but every single story i hear about world war one makes me think like that's the like you know if you had to pick a war that would probably be the 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 last one and especially yeah. when you talk about those trenches uh never They've never. This may be one reason that they don't make the World War One movies now is because to be realistic, you would have to show just how horrific the trenches were. And the first thing that comes to mind is, is just one thing is that there was no real plumbing naturally in these these nope. trenches uh, dug in uh, sometimes in the heat of the moment. So the middle of the fighting, there's nowhere else to go to the washroom. So there's so many stories of how you know in the middle of these. Intense battles, you know, the the trenches are flooded, not just with but but not just urine, but like but with blood and vomit, and of course any rain that seeped in. So you're it's it just turns every trench into a swamp, and the imagine the fact that you have to go through that kind of hellish conditions and try and fight and kill people that like that to me is like it's it's a true horror show. Like even Kubrick at the time, I wonder if he would want to, but you there's no way you could, you could put that on, on screen back then. Even yeah. now, people might might. They'd be more disgusted by than than horrified. Yeah, it would be very hard to get anybody to even accept it or shoot it. I think people would try it, but and, and they have tried it. I think as we've gotten quote grittier and more realistic with our our depictions of war films and things like that. But I, no one can really capture the horrible conditions that these men fought in, lived in, and survived in. And, you know, you watch a movie like this, and then you do any kind of reading on trench warfare, and it, it made me curious. I went and watched a couple of docs on trench warfare and stuff after this, and it's just amazing anybody survived it. You know, and I like I think about now, and I'm like, man, I, my the current generations running the world, we would all be dead. We nobody oh, yeah. has the toughness <laughs> to pull. The, I'm sorry, Vin and Rock. You know, you're, you may be throwing each other out of buildings and fast, <laughs> whatever, but you you would die. And it's like those these guys were so gritty and tough, and you could see how something like this would screw them up. I remember having a Time Life book. I think my parents had it actually, but we had it around the house when I was a kid, Kurt, and it had this picture of this soldier with the with the, you know the thousand yard stare, right? And it was from a scene in World War One that a, an artist had painted, and it was memories of the war. And I just always remember being just taken by just how gory it was, but the look on the face, and then you see these men as they're portrayed in these these different scenes here. And how you can see how someone can be just psychologically completely broken by an experience like this. Not to mention what's actually going to happen to the people in this story, which is amazing in and of itself. 
Oh yeah, and you, you make a good you make a good point about this. And it's, it's sometimes it's easy to forget about this when you watch when you hear about World War Two or World War One. Is you, you do for, sometimes forget these guys in the war. These aren't got, like pretty much most of these guys are not like you know uh, battle hardened guys that have been in you know fifty battles that are experts at what they do. So many of them are just. A guy who maybe up to like a month ago was, you know, uh, sweeping up, a, you know, a dirt in a store or, you know, pumping your gas. And now they're expected to do these these things that, again, it's like you would do any you would spend the rest of your life in prison. Probably, if it was between that and doing some of the stuff you hear about in, in World War One. Yeah. And. It's a good time to remind people, too, that, again, this is Kubrick adapting a book. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know much about the book that this is based on. I understand it's a rather loose adaptation uh, from whatever um, Humphrey Cobb wrote. Uh, but it's pretty well close to the main story. And that itself is based upon a true story of... French soldiers being executed for cowardice in the in World War One. So it's it, it's based in somewhat a reality, but it's not telling a person's story. But again, I feel like this is one of those things that Kubrick runs across a book and he can't get it out of his head, and then he he comes up with a way to film it now. And you know, nine hundred thousand dollars in nineteen fifty seven that was some dough. I mean, nobody put money down like that on a movie and. What's the amazing thing about this one is that it's so short. It's 88 minutes, which is not something you generally associate with Kubrick. That's usually when he gets warmed up. You know, it's it's 88 minutes. And there's almost no score to this. I mean, there's very little music other than just drum and fife. You know, it's mostly sound. And I could see a 1950s audience really being taken in by the soundscape and the the long big wide tracking shots of the battle as these men move across the battlefield from trench to trench i mean you can really see a lot of what will become some of kubrick's uh, real um trademarks i guess we'd say or fingerprints on films in this film with, with the way some of it's shot and the way it works oh yeah and you talk about um Audiences at the time being, you know, sucked into it. I, I might, you know, I love this movie, but I can totally see the exact opposite for the time. Because especially when you're talking about like the horror of, of World War One and and, you know, and that use of the you know insane sound for the time, uh, the fact that this is an anti-war film, you know, it's like yeah. this is absolutely not John Wayne about you know a movie about gung ho and fighting for your country and defeating the bad guys. This is about guys that are just you know. They're in, in their heads. They're des- They're really hoping this war comes to an end without their involvement at all. Like because they're just because they're having to bear witness to so much horrifying stuff. And it, you know, I was thinking like, there's no way in 1957 people were ever going to make a movie like Platoon, no. and not just because the Vietnam War hadn't come out, but about a movie that says, you know, that the military is not necessarily a good thing, and sometimes they do some really horrible stuff and sometimes you know to their own guys and this is a story like you know it's it's so in kind of disturbing psychologically to think about people had to go through what well one at least one guy for real had to go through and like if it wasn't based on a book it'd be almost tough to believe it's like what do you mean you try someone for cowardice how do you how do you measure that and then you find yeah. out this based on true story it's like jesus well that's the thing there's only two militaries at the time who did not execute people for cowardice the united states of america and australia now america actually sentenced guys to it but they never carried out the sentences 
you know, uh, huh. in the past. And so this was something that European armies did. And I think that's the thing Kubrick is trying to bring to the the audience. And it's probably why, again, it's critically acclaimed. But people may have bought this and been like, wow, okay. I you know, don't really know how to feel about it because, again, it's it's foreign to us. And I want to tell you, the, the master stroke in the selling of this, though, comes down to Kirk Douglas, American <laughs> treasure as a cinematic. And as of this recording of this podcast, 100 years old and still kicking. Can't I believe mean, it. The man is made out of steel. He's got to be. But just a just such a, a neat actor. But, you know, we think of him as these tough guy roles a lot of times because he really played a lot of them, and he'll play some more of them for Kubrick later on. <laughs> but he's not playing the tough guy here. I mean, he is. He's brave and all that stuff. But... He's a leader. He's an intellectual, and I think what Kubrick wants to wants to do here is have a war film where we can talk about the ethics and politics of war, and that logically, yes, this makes sense. You can't have men that will not advance and fight. But on the other hand, w- does it really do any good to execute them and try to you know motivate the, the other men? Does that really work? And also, isn't there always somebody else's motivation at play here? And I mean, that's <laughs> really the play at, at, that is centered around this. I mean, the war is almost the B story to this film. Yeah. Oh yeah. And yeah. And uh, talking about Kirk Douglas, he was, he was absolutely, he was known for these kind of, you know, gritty tough guy roles. And he is a tough guy in this, but his thing is like, he's uh, he's such an intelligent guy and a guy with like his whole thing in this movie is just common sense. He's the, one of the only guys, he's the only officer in the movie who is like, you know, really good at his job has a good sense of you know what he's doing and knows he knows how to do what the right thing is and the fact that you know no one above him cares about the right thing is you know that's part of the whole that's really the one of the anti-war messages is that sometimes the bosses are just absolute idiots doing things for the dumb for the dumbest reasons <laughs> like like and and you also get a, a scary sense that like there's a scene where you know Kurt Douglas says this: "What we've done today is going to haunt you guys for the rest of your lives," and you even get the sense it's probably not. These guys are just that you know disconnected and aristocratic that they're you know they're thinking about the wine they're going to have that night with dinner. And then like it's not sinking into them, but it is really sinking into uh, to Kirk Douglas's character. Oh, big time! And I mean, I think too that's that's part of the fun in watching this. If you're going to gain anything out of it, is this is really a courtroom drama. Too. And I'm a sucker for those. I don't know about you. I've talked about it in other podcasts. Hmm. I love like all the John Grisham stuff. Like I've watched them and read, you know, most of his books and I love any kind of good legal thriller. Like I, I like some of Aaron Sorkin's stuff because it does some of those sort of uh, political thrillers. And then there was this thing in the eighties and nineties where we just got obsessed with like lawyers and law case stuff and all this, this kind of stuff. And so I'll, I'm always a sucker for that kind of stuff. And I love how this one works here too. Cause there's lots of different military tribunals that can be portrayed, but I've never seen one like this. And what's amazing is how, like, dead on it is. Like, that people use this as, it's actually a pretty good template for how a military court-martial would have gone in 1914, you know, in in, a, in the French Army. And, uh, again, it's something that would have been really far into the American audience here, but I could see the lavishness of all of it 
and the, again, the performance is really being the thing that draws people in. I guess before we go any further, though, Kurt, we need to give people the plot summary because, again, this is not one that I, I know a lot of people may have seen unless you've just gone out of your way to get it. I didn't know it was a Kubrick thing. I knew I'd <laughs> seen part of it before somewhere along the way, but not really until watching it for, for our review here had I ever really sat down and chewed through it. So why don't you tell people what the, the plot of Paths of Glory is? Glory-seeking General Moreau, played by George McCready, directs Colonel Dax, played by Kirk Douglas, to lead a charge against an enemy position in the trench warfare of World War I. Despite Dax's own protests that this attack is futile in nature and will only result in heavy losses, he follows orders, but none of his men reach the German trenches. Unable to mount any morale for another offensive, Dax and his men stay in their trench. Moreau orders his military to fire upon his own men to spur them into battle, but the commanding officer refuses. After the battle, Miro accuses his, his soldiers of cowardice and court-martials three men, one man from each company, as scapegoats for his own failings. Dax, who was a lawyer in civilian life, attempts to defend his men, leading to a further rift between he and the commanding officers who differ philosophically on the very nature of war. The trial is a farce with the three men found guilty and Dax is forced to lead the firing squad to execute the convicted. In the end, Miro's commanding officer, General Brulard, brings an investigation on him for the order to fire upon his own men. Brulard offers Miro's command to Dax, who reveals his idealism is not a ploy for, for promotion, but his true nature which alienates him from General Brulard. Dax and his men are ordered to return to the battlefront, which Dax delays, telling his soldiers as he sees them enjoy a peaceful moment watching a girl sing before his face gives away his resignation to their inevitable return to war. I love how you say that Dax uh, reveals his idealism is not a ploy for promotion and his true nature when he basically tells that guy to go to hell. I mean, that's, that's what he does. He does a he does a Rep Butler. Frank, frankly, my dear, I don't give yeah. a damn. You know, it's a it's a great moment. But uh, no, you, so much to dig in and unpack there, uh, Kurt. And I think you did a good job of summarizing it. We talked a lot about trench warfare in World War One, and I, this movie again does a really good job of introducing that concept to us. And I again, I just put myself back in the time of in 1957. I feel so spoiled nowadays because we can. You can do this on a television show on network TV now, right? Like, this would be production-level value we could pull off if we, we pulled it together enough. But back then, this this was a an amazing-looking thing. And it's, and it's black and white, too. And I wanted to ask you about your, your thought on that. I mean, this was at a point in cinema where it was they were black and white, there was a lot of color, and I'm sure it was a budget reason. But I kind of think the aesthetic of the black and white helps tell the story here, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, black and white, that's a big theme of this movie is, you know, what, what is really good and like we, what's good and what's evil. Like supposedly the Germans are the bad guys. We don't even see uh, a single one of them. Like, the, you know, uh, the Yeah, we never the bad even guys, see them. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Bad guys are the, are, the, are supposedly, you know, the, the guys that are supposed to be looking out for you in this movie. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is and I think you've hit on it there is that. This is a discussion of what is right, what is wrong, this black and white. And really, though, this movie is a bunch of gray mess. And I kind of feel like that's Kubrick's entire message here is that eh, life is mostly gray mud. 
you know. <laughs> and I mean, really, uh, Dax even goes as much to say that in a lot of ways. And I don't know. It's it, you get that immediate contrast though, because you see the just wretched conditions that these men are fighting and working and living in, right? And then you go to meet our two generals, Brillard and Moreau. Who I I got to tell you, I I know I'd seen these actors and other things, but. What fabulous performances. I mean, George McReady is so mustache-twirlingly evil, <laughs> but yet he, he's really just a political animal, right? Like, that's his entire motivation here. Oh, yeah. Like, in, in, our, in the last podcast when I was talking about the killing, I talked about there's a certain kind of very old-school, very 50s movie acting. I, I, might, I might call it, you know, nasty, very, like, in a way that, you know, people don't really talk like that, man. But... And these two generals are kind of like that, but this is a, ca- a case where that really helps the film because it makes these guys, they are so aristocratic that it, that it really amplifies how detached they are from whether it's the, the real world or just the lives of their men who are these blue-collar guys. And these guys are, you know, what are they? They're drinking their, their brandy in this, <laughs> like, you know, Marie Antoinette's, uh, you know, uh, uh, cabin in the woods. Yeah, let, uh, let them eat cake. Yeah, I mean, really, they, this these two guys are so disconnected from the front lines, and this is what I think gives this movie any kind of modern staying power. Because if you can't relate to the war side of it, and there's a lot of us who can't, so that's that's fine. But everybody, most people, work in an office setting or work in an organization <laughs> where you feel like the the higher ups. Don't really get what you have to do every day to pull off this stuff. They just want you to go do it. And I'm Mm -hmm. sitting there, you know, relating this to my work day. (laughs) And and I was having a conversation with Nick, our our podcast partner, about this and telling him about this. And I I don't think he's seen this movie, but just me describing it. He said, that sounds exactly like my workplace, (laughs) just without all the guns and the killing, you know. But, I mean, really, you think about it. I think that's the story Kubrick wants to tell is – not so much the war story, it's the politics story. I think he's interested in the politics of it. And not the what makes the French want to attack the Germans, yeah. but that this French general, who clearly didn't get that role for no reason, but somewhere along the way sold out, right? And now is just all about the positioning. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, watching the movie a second time, it's interesting, like the first minute or two with Miro when he's faced with this you know he's, he's being told to attack the anthill his first reaction is well we, like he he sounds like one of the good guys like well we you know we can't do it we don't have the manpower but he says but then the, his boss says well there's a promotion in it for you and then he totally changes his tune you realize yeah. oh this this guy's got his head up his ass he's totally just about climbing the ladder and he reminds me a lot of uh this guy's a little bit more evil in this but a, a great film one of the best films about war Terrence Malick's uh Thin Red Line, two particular characters. Oh, yes. uh, Nick Nolte's character plays this colonel who wants to make his you know, mark in the war, no matter what the cost. He, like, he keeps me- water away from his men just to keep them moving forward, just to try to take the Guadalcanal. And there's another character in that movie who is also a lawyer who's deeply uh, concerned about his men. And, uh, and I thought about, yeah, I thought of the, those two movies, I don't know if Malik was influenced at all uh, or if there's any connection at all, but I definitely, I think of those two movies a lot. Like Thin Red Line is the World War II version of Paths of Glory, kind of. 
you know, I'm glad you mentioned that one because I remember that movie distinctly again from childhood, having seen it. And I haven't seen it in a number of years, but I was thinking about it often while watching this one. I'll tell you, you know, this reminds me of is a movie called The Big Red One, which I saw growing up again. And I think it's a movie from the late 70s, early 80s, and it's another one of those harrowing war films. And it, it reminded me a lot of this one as well. So I, I do think the fingerprints of this are found throughout because I think the theme is something that is repeatable. Again, it's men in power who will use pawns to get where they want to go and they don't I mean, they have no connection to these men. They don't care. And that's, that's the, the immediate contrast when we meet Dax and his men is he's a colonel. But in those days, in particular, you, that meant you were leading the charge. And, I mean, by leading the charge, people, he put a helmet on, he drew a thirty eight revolver, and he blew a whistle like a referee or a coach <laughs> and, like, led them on the charge. I mean, that's what this man did. And he was really like a coach on the field. It's, it was neat to watch. But you see the respect that he commands, and he doesn't have to ask for it. Like these other men come into the room, and everybody has to shape up and ship out and all that kind of stuff. Dax just walks down the corridor, and he's not doing anything to draw any attention. He's just checking on his men, and they all you know, give him the look. They snap to him. You know, I mean, he's... He's obviously someone that has earned their respect, and he knows them by name, too. That's the other thing that was really impressive, and I think that's part of his job would be to know those things. Oh, yeah, and uh, I love the scene where, where uh, right before we meet Dax, where Muro, where we, we, we finally enter the trenches, and we, all of a sudden the movie shifts into these tracking shots that really, really put us in those trenches, and I love the bit where we see Muro you know he's he's being the very you know pompous general character you know coming up to soldiers asking hey ready to kill more germans like with no no concept really to what that means and he comes across this one soldier who's smiling kind of way too much and he asks him so uh looking forward to getting back to your wife and the guy totally breaks down with the smile on his face it's really creepy and this guy's clearly going through you know post traumatic stress before there was a there was a term for it and, you know, that's when the movie shifts in tone from this, you know, aristocratic tone of the generals to we're now dealing with, you know, the nitty gritty darkness uh, of war here. Well, no, and let's give props to the cinematographer here, George Cross, who is a German cinematographer. And this is kind of the most famous thing he did, at least Western wise. But the think about how hard those tracking shots would be to set up and get in 1957. You're talking about oh, yeah. laying miles of track. Yeah. <laughs> To make that work. And then, you I mean, they're trying to make it wind through the earth. You know, because Kubrick will not just do a set. I mean, he makes them dig up half the earth to <laughs> shoot something. Now, they may have just run back and forth in the same, you know, 30 feet or whatever. But, they I mean, all that detail is in there. I mean, you can see the knotted roots. I don't know if you've ever dug deep in the ground or not, Kurt. <laughs> I, I happened to do a little bit of a gardening project recently where I just started digging through stuff. And you just kind of get below about four inches, and it's, like, amazing some of the stuff you run into. I'm like... I dug a rock up that had probably been underground for, I don't know, how long? <laughs> you know, And I'm like, well, that one's in the air now. Probably never expected to be there again. And I thought, what, what that would have been like in a trench warfare when you're digging 10, 12, 15 feet deep into yeah. the earth? And by the way, we should mention that was all done mostly by hand back in those days. I mean, that's, just, that's guys with shovels throwing mounds of dirt outside, and then you've got all that barbed wire, too. I mean, it's just a... Yeah. It, that's the funny thing about this, is as a black-and-white film, you think you're, there's really no you know 
gradation and you can't see it, but the lighting works so well to give you that sense of, you know, you can see the terrain, you can feel the, the room, you can feel the air almost in it as you're, as you're tracking through all those different pieces. And what you get is they lay out the plan to take the anthill, which I think is so aptly named because it doesn't look like much of anything, and it really isn't anything. I was reminded of another Vietnam War film called Hamburger Hill. I don't know if you've <laughs> ever seen that one or not, but got it so named because that's what it looked like on the side of it by the time they took it. And and when they took it, they the, the soldiers that took it, you know, recalled standing up, looking around, going, "And for what?" Like yeah. it, it gave them no advantage whatsoever, and there's no advantage even to taking this position. Dax even says so. It's like what. What is this even going to do for us? Yeah. And it's nothing but it. The lead general gives the other general the order, and you know there's a promotion in it for you if you can do it. Okay, then we're going to go do it. It's just, it's like again, you go to work and you get some random you know project you have to complete in, in a ridiculous amount of time <laughs> for no reason that seems to make any sense, right? But you just oh, do yeah. it because that's what you do. At least that's how I was relating to it, and I kind of felt like that's how Dax was relating it to them too, like they give him the plan and he's like this is a bad idea but then he goes along with it too i want to ask you what you thought about that is that he protests but only to a point oh yeah i think he you know uh, moreau he breaks it down way too plainly about how we got eight thousand guys and about half of them are going to get killed but we'll get the job done we're going to four thousand guys are going to get killed in you know in 20 minutes but it'll be worth it in the end and dax he flat out says how moronic it all is and Miro's talking about how all of France is counting on him, and he has, uh, and Dax has this great line. He's like, you know, I'm not a bull. I don't need a red flag raved in front of me. And he talks about Samuel Johnson, who said, you know, patriotism was the last refuse of a of a scoundrel. He says, and right here, you know, then again, the movie shifts into anti-war mode. Dax isn't all about, you know, we'll kick the Germans' asses, live to fight another day. He's like, I'm really only doing this because I'm ordered to. And I like I like to think my guys can do it, but you know, probably not. And he uh, and yeah, Moreau he threatens to uh, relieve him, and Dax says, "Look, you can't do that. You can't put someone else in charge." And like Dax, like he's like he he just Dax would feel better. He's almost like he's like a like a dad or something. Like he just he feels better being around his boys than you know leaving in the hands of of, of somebody else. No matter. Even though it's even though like it's just it's nothing but bad here. He knows it's going to break bad. But I'd rather be my responsibility than someone else's. Well, I think it's it's two it's two things. It's like I said, he's kind of like the coach, right? And he knows those men trust him, and he's not sure that one anybody else can possibly motivate him to do any of this. He's not even yeah. sure he can do it, but yeah. at least he wants to be there when it happens. You know, and I I think too the one thing about Dax, at least I took off the times I watched it was that I think he had made or had come to a peace with his own mortality long before these orders came down to like, if I get killed doing this, okay. You know, like he was, he would sort of resign to that fact. And again, I mean, they lay out the odds there. We're going to lose half the men. And he's like, that really, that's not good. But he also realizes that's actually also quite accurate. I mean, yeah. And you think about these kind of decisions that are made and just think about the the type of psyche it takes to be that kind of person. General Moreau, it it turns out to be, I don't even know if I want to call him evil. He's just greedy uh, among anything else. But like any greedy man in power who wants more power, he doesn't really see 
the cost as anything personable. Like these are just like they're like ants. Like, well, we kill a few thousand of them, whatever. We'll get a few thousand more, but we'll we'll make the objective. So, what's the difference? Hmm. Like, and to think about what it takes to get to the point where you can just write off three thousand people, like it's no big deal to you. That's, I, I mean, I just sat there thinking about that, and I thought the the psyche that that would take. It's it's fun to think about, it. and I think that's not in there arbitrarily. Again, this is a lean movie at eighty eight minutes, and it's a lot of dialogue, and every word in it seems to have a purpose. Oh yeah, and it's like you know, it's it's you got these two very you know, it's like uh, bizarre characters, you know, just in terms of relatability. You got this one guy who's perfectly willing to throw away. 4,000 lives, and you got the one guy who's perfectly willing to be one of those 4,000 guys. Like, and he's, he, and like Dax, again, he's, he's not going to be in the trenches with binoculars leading the charge. Uh, I mean, commanding the charge, he's leading the charge with that, with that whistle in the revolver. He, like, he, you know, he knows that anything is, you know, that's going to happen to his guys is going to happen to him. So Dax sends his lieutenant, Roger, played by Wayne Morris, on a two-man scouting mission with uh, one of uh, his other soldiers, who's Corporal Paris, and they, they're supposed to go up with the scout and just kind of get a sense for the lay of the land, right? Which I, This is like tension building right here. I've really found myself sort of sitting on the edge of my seat going, are these guys going to make it back? What are they trying? What's the purpose of this? They don't seem to really even be gathering, gathering any good intel. And this lieutenant is a, is the biggest waste of a lieutenant since Gorman got off the drop <laughs> ship. I mean, really, it's the, I'm like, man, I see where they get that from. <laughs> Again, it's an archetype that gets played a lot because you have these, these men in um, leadership positions who have knowledge but don't have any real skill in doing it and as it turns out this guy's just a just a drunk yeah this is this this whole like side of the movie here it's 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 like a subplot uh you know you could you could quite possibly remove it from the movie and the and the story might still flow but it's an excellent uh story in and of itself that could be its own movie uh this idiot officer who leads the recon mission while he's drunk and you know in a movie about, you know, what does it mean to be, you know, cowardly or brave in war, we get the most, the grandest act of cowardice in, you know, a war movie I can recall, which is he sends one of his guys out against towards the Germans. He gets a little jumpy and throws a grenade and runs. Only turns out he, that he killed his own guy. Yeah, um, friendly fire. I mean, they, they talk about that a lot on a lot of these, like, again, a lot of those trench warfare documentaries I watched, and just a lot of any kind of war documentary. Firefights are nasty things. And you get a lot of bullets flying around, and there's a lot of people that got killed by friendly fire that we don't know about even, and nobody yeah. will ever tell you because that's just some of the bad stuff that goes down in war. You know, I mean, it's it's awful, but it's it's true. And this guy has, I mean, one, he's drunk, so he shouldn't have been out there to begin with. But he's also, a, he's an actual coward. Like, that's that's the, I guess the irony of this is that he's a coward, and in the end, he has to lead part of the firing squad. He's not one of the men set up on it. And he, he freaks out and throws that grenade and kills the scout. And the other guy finds it. And that's one of the reasons we find out why he gets set up from his company, too. So Because it's part of a blackness. Like you say, it's this, this sort of law and order subplot. This yeah. whole thing. It's it's like you wouldn't even need it in the movie, but the fact that it's there makes it even better. Oh yeah, and this great performance by this guy, uh, uh, Ralph Meeker, who plays uh, 
what's his name, Corporal uh, Paris. Uh, Paris, and he's. I haven't seen him in anything else, uh, but he is really good. Just a quick note about the acting overall in this movie. I talked about you know, the generals are very aristocratic, and the like. Our guys, you know, the soldiers, they're very. They're excellent. It, it, it's a terrific bit of acting that uh, uh, Kubrick gets out of this. It's a good point to time also to point out. I think Kubrick was uh, what was he twenty seven yeah. when he made one of the defining war films of all time, which is just uh, amazing. But yeah, this 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 subplot where this surviving guy goes back, uh, fully prepared to rat the officer out, and the officer tries to play it cool. It's like, well, I got as much. Uh, uh, dirt on you because you're just because you're talking back but deep down that guy knows it's all over if if the yeah. right people found out like he's probably he's gonna get hanged he's gonna get shot whatever uh and it's also a nice thing that these two guys know each other from before the war yeah. and just by sheer dumb luck or however it turned out maybe one guy went to college and one didn't this guy wound up an officer and this guy's uh, you know uh one of the grunts Exactly. It's like you feel about it. They knew each other. Maybe they worked in the same company or something like that. But Roger had education or money yeah. or something like that. But, you know, Ralph Meeker, the soldier Paris there, I'm sad to say that one other thing I know him from is Kolchak the Night Stalker. He's uh, <laughs> one of the cops, which, by the way, is awesome. <laughs> if you haven't revisited that lately, you owe it to yourself to do so. <laughs> um, so I'm a bit of a vampire whore anyway, so I'll, I'll always <laughs> say that. But anyway, um but no, I love that he falsifies the report. They have this whole conspiracy, and I'm like, this is a movie in and of itself right here. I'm like, this is so, like, I'm into this so much, and I have no relatable connection to any of it. That's the, the weird thing about watching this for me is that I don't have any relation to this. Like, there, I shouldn't be able to connect to this as well as I am. But hmm. the performances and, the again, the way it's delivered and put in front of me. And I, I want to say this again about the camera work in this. The way it moves when they are moving in battle scenes, is it, it's kind of like back and to the left over their shoulders a lot of times. Yeah. So you get it, It's far enough away that you can kind of pick out who the people are, but you also can't. So it gives you that sense of how you could get lost in something like that. But oh, when yeah. they want you to really know something, the camera is still. And it's sitting, and you get a wide shot, and you get these men, and when it's really important, you get the close up, and then you get the other close up, and the two shot, and all. I mean, it's really kind of neat. And I'm not a a big camera buff or anything like that, but I love the way this thing is shot and put together. Um, and you know, reports are that um, you know Kubrick was this is where he really started his you know 900 takes kind of thing, mm. and and I think it was uh, McCready or one of the other actors got so mad at him one day, like it had enough of it and just went off, and all Kubrick did was just sit there and go, okay, well, let's do it again. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And oh, yeah. Douglas thought that was awesome. He was like, well, this guy just railed on him for 10 minutes, and he said, well, okay, let's do it again. You know, and Kubrick, the, the immense patience. Um, um, or maybe he just liked messing with people. I don't know. <laughs> if you ask Shelley Duvall, she'll tell you yes. But anyway, we'll uh-huh. get to that later <laughs> on. But no, the, you know, the next morning we're going to do the attack on the anthill. And just as Dax thought, the first wave goes and they, you know, they get into no man's land and it is a huge failure. Like they, they make no progress whatsoever. They get none of the German trenches. And B Company refuses to even leave because they see the massacre going in front of them and they're like, I ain't having none of that. And this is where you get what I think is um, some of the most intriguing bit back and forth in, in the film. Moreau is sitting back watching this and is so enraged that he starts calling up the artillery commanders going, I'm going to need you to fire all these guys to get them to move. And he's really just wanting to try to motivate them, which <laughs> I thought this, there's no way. So I looked it up. 
and yes, this was a real thing that people did throughout history, not necessarily in the American army, but uh, definitely in, in this time of World War I. They would fire on their own guys to get them to move sometimes just to let them know, like, you're either going to go out there and fight or we're going to kill you ourselves. And I love that the battery commander is like, nope, I'm going to need like a note from your third grade teacher and your social security. Yeah. No, like he's like, nah, not. he's going through every like bureaucratic thing. And that's what's funny to me about it. I guess why I like it so much, Kurt, is that this guy is such a bureaucrat and he ultimately his his plot is foiled by bureaucracy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I love that commander who, you know, you think he's just the guy in charge of firing the the. The artillery, and it turns out that he's probably got a lot of degree in his back pocket saying, I'm not, but he is also, he, he is, he's also like Dax, he's got common sense. He's like, I'm not going to do that. But if I did, I'm going to need it in writing that I can't be put up against a wall when this is all over and when it does break bad, you idiot. Yeah. You know what I like is that we don't know anything about that guy. And for all I know, he runs a, a butcher shop. Yeah. You know, but he's like, nope, we're going to do it the right way. So there's a right way to slice that corn beef or whatever. I mean, I like that he's like, nope, I'm going to do it. The We're not going to do, if you want to do something reckless, I'm going to need to, I'm going to make sure my butt's covered too. Because hmm. then that's what's funny here is you realize that all of these men that are in control from Dax to that, that artillery commander, Moreau, all of them know one thing that no matter what, at some point the buck is going to be st- stop with them and they have to figure out how they can either handle that mitigate it or who they're going to shove it off to the lieutenant does that too down to the corporal that we just talked about and this guy's like well you know when they bring me up on why did you fire on our own man i'm gonna go because the general told me to here it is in yeah. writing you know it's like, there's my get out of jail free card and i but again I, I love the fact that he is stopped by bureaucracy and he's just so enraged about it. Again, I think McCready really sells the performance here because he, he's a little over the top, but it's perfect for the moment. Oh, yeah. he's uh, <laughs> Yeah, no one really follows orders in this movie terribly well uh, from, the, from the top on down. And before we move on from this battle scene, i got to mention one of my favorite scenes in the movie is right, right before the battle scene, like right before, right before the whistle blows, we get this great scene with Joe Turkle, who, in, who was in The Killing, and he ends up in uh, as... Uh, Lloyd, the bartender in, in The Shining, where he's talking to his buddy, uh, just breaking down what's worse, getting shot in the ass or getting shot in the head, <laughs> and saying, you know, if he's going to be shot, he'd rather get shot in the ass, because that, you know, that's more or less superficial wound, but the head would hurt a lot more if it didn't kill him. And it's a really, that's a, when I think of like, a, that's a very Kubrick scene, like, I, I doubt a lot of other people would go that dark in, in, in a movie, because it, it's really effective at you know playing on the imagination to you know a, a way to you know a, 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 to place yourself in in the minds of some of these guys before the battle because you know you haven't heard a shot but already you're 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 so nervous after hearing that it's like you can you can really feel the fear of the combat it makes you realize how frightening combat can be that you know hoping you get shot rather than with shrapnel these are the kind of things that these soldiers are thinking of Mm-hmm. Especially this battle, where you know, for the last twenty minutes before this scene, they haven't stopped saying how slim the odds of victory are. So uh, all these guys, like they know they're, you know, they're going to be, you know, chop meat, you know, in within twelve hours. And it all it also sets up a, a kind of realistic fear of why a guy might want to turn around when 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 everything breaks bad. 
Well, yeah, I mean, you've got you've got Private Arnold Turkle that you're talking about there, and I think what you're seeing and what Kubrick wanted you to see is what do the lowest level ants? How do they react to this? Stress wise, how do they deal with it? And so he gets two of them, and one guy's kind of having a minor freak out. And Arnold's answer to that is, I'm going to talk about something that's very real for both of us, but I'm going to talk about it in such a ludicrous way that it kind of makes us both chuckle a little bit so that we can <laughs> go and do this. It's like, would you rather be shot in the head or in the ass? You know, it's like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like, what an odd question to ask, but it does totally take your mind off for just a couple minutes what's happening. You know, yeah. what's what's going on there? And I mean, it's a bad scene. And forgive me for bringing this one up. But it's kind of like, you know how many kind of shrimp they are, Forrest? You know, <laughs> I mean, it is a little bit of that. <laughs> you know, it's that same kind of thing, right? It's it's that's it's what you do. You just talk about mundane stuff before you go before these guys go. And it's not the first time I've heard stories like that, too. So I, I think it's great. And it, the thing about the, the attack, too, I want to mention, Dax really does try to get Company B to move. Like, he's down there yeah. like, come on, let's go give it the old Newt Rockney, you know, one yeah. gipper. And he's, like, blowing that whistle and come on. And he get he tries to go up the ladder and a, and a dead soldier knocks him down. Yeah. And it's like, that's even when he's like, oh, this is friggin' hopeless. Yeah. You know, and I mean, he, even he knows. He's like, oh, this is bad. Yeah, it's like, you know, he's like, Deep down, he knew he was right the whole time, and he's like, he feels bad that he can't make it, but he probably feels, you know, maybe slight bit of relief that, well, you know, you know, like these guys aren't going to die because they're quote unquote being cowardly, but also, you know, they're using their heads here. They're, I'm not going to run into the, you know, where uh, German and French shells are, you know, falling and, and bullets and explosions and stuff. Well, uh, yeah, and and then the thing is that the fallout is, of course, Moreau wants a hundred of these people executed for cowardice, and Brillard, understanding that, okay, yes, you're 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 right, we're going to execute these men, sure, but what wouldn't just doing a, a a random show like if we just picked one from each company, wouldn't that be a better you know show of force or whatever? Wouldn't that be, and it would cost us less men and stuff? And so he agrees to that. And I found that fascinating. I'm like, is that even a real thing? And it is in history that in French companies they would execute like every tenth man in a yeah. company just to just to you know randomly just go one through ten, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, seventy, stand out, boom, shot them all, and then everybody go back to war. You know, and it's like, well, okay, that would get the point across, and. I, but the, what's interesting to me about this is the rationale that these men have for this. Obviously, Moreau wants people to to swing so that he can look like an effective commander because he's still bucking for the promotion, right? But they firmly believe that doing this is going to motivate these men to fight further. And I'm just like, um, I guess it's my 20th century brain here that <laughs> just can't wrap my mind around, is that even really effective motivation? Like, you're going to kill me or they're going to kill me. Either way, I'm going to get killed. I don't know. I didn't really, I don't know if that really works. Yeah, it's such a horrible motivating factor. Like, not money, not, uh, you know, any kind of positive reinforcement. It's just maybe if we, you know, we go, what can we do to motivate these guys to not get killed by us? It's, you know, it is real. it is really sick stuff. Let's talk about the three men that are chosen. I mean, one we've already talked about. Uh, Paris is chosen by his commanding officer, Roger, who's going to make sure he doesn't go down for the scouting mission thing, right? So there's that one. All right. Th they choose uh, Arnold randomly. 
by a lot. And he, it, the, the irony there is he's been cited for bravery twice. So now they're going to execute him for cowardice on behalf of everyone else. And then they choose Farrell, Timothy Carey, who was in the killing. We talked about him. Uh, picked by his commanding officer because he's a, quote, social undesirable. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think this guy's <laughs> problem is, other than he's just a little off? Uh, well, that, I don't know. Maybe that's that's all that's all the excuse they need is that he's uh, he's a little off. He's uh, he's 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 definitely Tim Carey for I sure. Mean, you, you know what? I was like feeling cowardly lying in the Wizard of Oz off of this dude. Uh, maybe it's because I've been bit, listening yeah. to too much Courtney Dickinson music, but I mean, yeah. I just had that on my brain, and I was like, man, this is, feels like the cowardly lying. A little bit. I mean, yeah, he, he's a little bit of a. Cowardly lines one way, maybe man child is another. This guy's not. That's a good one, yeah. He's not. In, this guy isn't entirely matured yet, even though, even though he looks like he's forty five. Uh, you know, he's, <laughs> he's and you know, and I, they decide let's cut this guy's life short for whatever reason. Well, for the for the for Company B, he will die for yeah. Company B. Yeah, that's basically what we what we learned. And you know, I, each of these men are in a different place when it when it all comes down i mean you see dax who is a criminal defense lawyer he tries to he's gonna talk to them you know and he's he tries to discuss with them ahead of time what to do and what's funny to me is Farrell is just like the total like game over man like he yeah. he's already like we're we're dead we're so dead it doesn't matter and dax is trying to be the idealist and and fight for them the other two men like what's interesting to me is paris is the one that really is getting screwed <laughs> Here, yeah. because he is—he's being killed because somebody else screwed up, and he's going to make sure people know about it. But nobody's ever going to believe him, so he doesn't even bother with it. Like he turns in material on it, but doesn't really do him any good, right? And Arnold is the one who seems to just accept it until he gets really pissed off at the priest later yeah. on, so he gets knocked out. But I mean, that—I don't know. I, I found the three men though, and the moments we had with them, where they're coming to terms with their mortality if you will to be some harrowing stuff in the film like it's really it really messes with you they are they're, they're excellent excellent characters and great performances by all three guys and uh what is it? i think it's paris who's uh, one of the most heartbreaking things is a very casual thing he says what is it he gives a letter to his wife and says yeah she's yeah. not gonna understand this and then you realize yeah she really isn't gonna understand this so yeah we we picked your husband up by random and we shot him because he didn't want to run into the explosions. It's like, you know, there's a whole movie there. It's like, you know, just like you could film a whole 90-minute scene of uh, the wife being having it all explained to her because it really doesn't make sense at all. And one would argue, would they even bother ever even to give her that letter? Probably not. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, they probably just threw it away the minute they walked out of there because they're like, there's no way we're telling her. Why would you tell anybody back home that this is yeah. what you did? Like, that's, this is, it wasn't like this was going to be on CNN. You know, that yeah. night. they were going to talk about this stuff. This is what happened in war. And they would just say, your husband died on the battlefield. The end. You know, and that <laughs> would be it. And he would just be another casualty in a trench somewhere. You know, in a place that she's never, you know, going to see or hear from. And it's, it is sad, though, because, you know, he's written that knowing I took it as like he wrote that knowing he needed to say those things to her, knowing he'll never get to say them to her and no one will ever say them to her. But he needed to get it off of his chest like he couldn't die having that still in his head. You know, like he had to get that out of him. Oh, yeah. And it's also particularly brutal because uh, unless I'm mistaken with the timeline of the movie, there 
you know, cutting to the chase here, but they are executed like within 48 hours of the actual battle. Oh yeah, like, they, it pull happens off, that they pull quick. them off the battlefield quick to get this done. Like this, yeah. this, this court is such a farce. I mean, they throw yeah. this. There's no stenographer. There's no written formal incident. There's no evidence that they're going to allow Dax to to put in. I mean, it's complete sham from the beginning to the end. And that's when he lays that great line about like, if you find these people guilty, it's going to haunt you. And they're like. Whatevs, you know they do yeah. it anyway. Yeah, this 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 trial, yeah, turns into a few good men all, all of a sudden, and and with this, you know, for some reason, I you know, even though you know, Kubrick was the original David Fincher in terms of th- being that freaking depressing, but I I thought of Fincher like a lot and stuff like House of Cards with how horribly it goes and how depressing it is to sit through and witness this bureaucracy. How the soldiers, while they're being uh, interviewed by the prosecuting attorney they keep trying to explain like the logistics the common sense of what was happening and the soldier i mean the the prosecuting attorney keeps cutting them off i said that's not what i asked you i said did you turn around and run away or not no details answer the question and that is it's like it's disgusting joe turkle's character gets cut off i mean dax trying to list all this guy's accommodations and the judge cuts him off and says well that's irrelevant that's totally irrelevant doesn't matter how brave he was in the past. We're talking about this one time he was a coward, and it, it's it's revolting. I know it is. It, and it, again, it shows you, and I think that's what Kubrick wants to show, is that these are people who live inside of their own world and their own rules. And when you try to apply any of the civilian civility and logic that we would have to it, it doesn't make any sense like the, and they won't hear it because again that's not what i asked you i wanted to know exactly this point dot this uh cross this t and that's the end and when again it's not black and white it's actually much grayer and what's interesting is after the sentence is is um brought down and they know what's going to happen that's when the artillery officer shows up Rousseau's his name and he basically tells uh, Dax and has it all written up for him about here's how Moreau tried to get me to fire on those guys and why I refused and everything just in case you know and like they're not even going to call him before the court they don't want to talk to him nothing but he's now you know Dax has got that in his back pocket and I was immediately sort of took with like well, I wonder what Dax is going to do with that you know, because he doesn't like run up the steps immediately and go, hold on, I've got something for you. Like he he sort of puts it in his back pocket to pull out at a different time. It's almost like he knows once the court has ruled, there's nothing else he can do. Yeah, he he knows from the start. He you know, as surprised as he had, he probably knew how this was all going to go from the start with how cavalier the generals are about you know killing their own guys, and it's 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 like. It's almost like something out of Alice in Wonderland. It's like it's so surreal how Dax is just trying to bring common sense into this trial and how it just he totally fails. He said, Hey, listen, nobody got close to the German wire, myself included. He's basically saying, you know, Jesus, give him a break. Nobody could have survived that. And and yeah, and Dax, you know, he sums up so great in, in that, you know, that in the closing remark saying Gentlemen, there are moments where I'm ashamed to be a part of the human race, and this is one such occasion. He talks about how if you kill these guys, it's going to haunt you for the rest of your life. But it's it's clear that these you know these judges and lawyers really don't care. Uh, and and Dax is he really is he's probably he's thinking too much of them to even you know threaten them with you know the haunting of their souls. Like these these guys lost their souls a while ago, probably. Well, yeah, and he does pick his battle to go and tell Brulard. He finds him at a ball that night and pulls him to the side, basically, and lays it all out for him. 
And Brulard just dismisses it. He's like, you're trying to blackmail the, the general staff into sparing your men. We're, we're not going to do that. But uh, And he dismisses him immediately. And so that's when the final nail has hit. And you realize, God, there's no hope for these guys. And, man, the, the, the execution scene is so... I, you talk about, like, Fincher depressing. I mean, it's so sad. You got the one guy who knows he's getting screwed. Um, you have the one decorated guy who's gotten a fight with somebody and got knocked out, so he's probably going to be dead anyway. Like he's got such a like a cracked skull now, so he's not even really alive to get shot. And then you got the crying guy, Timothy Gary's character, who just can't stop wailing. And like they keep trying to tell him, like, man, have some dignity, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And he's the one that wants a blindfold. The nearly dead guy is like not able to answer and then the other guy's like i don't care you know <laughs> just get it on with and be on your way you know it's so it's so sad but i do love how dax makes his lieutenant like okay you're gonna you're gonna do the uh the final <laughs> orders on this and the guy's like i don't know how to do that he's like oh yeah sure you do you line them up you pull your sword you drop it and everybody shoots and then we go home <laughs> and it's like ouch so he you know he made sure to put that guy in his place and i think like for me cinematically i wanted that because i'm like that guy needed to get his at some point and i feel like he'll probably get killed in battle some point anyway (laughs) but i needed him to get a little bit of comeuppance right here and the fact that he's got to carry this out now that's dax again showing us the the age-old rule the bullshit does indeed roll downhill my friend Oh yeah, it's uh, it's the closest thing to a satisfying moment is you know before that firing squad he calls in the lieutenant to break down his his what his job is going to be tomorrow how about you gotta after you after they die you also have to walk up to them and put a bullet in each of their heads yourself and because the thing is where like that scene where uh, the uh, lieutenant and the corporal are arguing each other about what went down at the night recon mission dax walks right in i like to think he like he knows the guy's drunk he probably actually overheard all of that and the only reason he didn't make a stink about it is because because we got one of the biggest missions we're ever going to have tomorrow, and I kind of need every commanding officer I can get. I can't get a replacement for this idiot quick enough. But the like he he knew he knows what went down. He knows that the, you know the guy who didn't come back was killed by one of his own guys. So he has that in the back of his head all the time. He can't use that during the trial, but he can <laughs> he can uh, use that information. You know, even though it's justice, he, he puts it forth into this really vicious piece of vengeance thing when the officer's like, I don't really want to do that. It's like, you got the job. That'll be all. Get lost. Well, Dax knows that there's only so much he can control. He's very pragmatic that way. And so he controls it. He's like, well, I can't change these people's mind about this. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to put myself in their place because that's not the protocol. So I'm going to make sure we do this. We're going to do it by the book. I'm going to make sure that some bitch over there has something to do with it because clearly he wasn't, any more fit to fight than any of these other people. And so I'm going to let him know that there are consequences for your actions, pal. And he, you know, he puts it out there and I mean, we get the, we get the, uh, scapegoat firing squad. And I mean, it's, it's as awful as you would think it would be. I mean, it's, it's terrible. And what's amazing to me is you have the execution. Then you got Brulard and, and Moreau like gloating at breakfast about it. It's like, let's go shoot some dudes and have some waffles. You know, I mean, it's very, it's, it's again, it's so like dehumanizing and detached. And this is where you get a great Kirk Douglas scene. And he enters, he's been invited by Brulard because Brulard knows that he's like, well, I'm not going to let this, you know, uh, Moreau guy get off either because obviously he's not fit for a higher command. So we're going to have to 
deal with that. And Dax just gave me the ammunition for it. So, okay, I'll go ahead and ruin him now. And I love how he turns on him. You know, again, Brulard is like, I never took him as either evil or good. He's just the system. He's just the ultimate part of the system here. And so when he turns the, the guns basically on Moreau, I love how he tries to squeeze out of it one more time. And he's like, he's just so offended that this one, how could you dare say this to me? You know, and all this stuff. I'm like, man, they've got you so dead to rights. I mean, they have more on you than they had on any of those other guys. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's as dead as anybody else. But I do love him as he kind of huffs out of the room there. It's, it's, it's a good moment for McCready. Uh, and then uh, again, it's a good moment of Brulard too. Oh yeah. This, this, this is my, my favorite scene of the movie. Like the, the men are dead. Dax is he's done with it all. He's probably done with the whole French army. He could not care about anything. So when he's offered Muro's job, he doesn't accept. He couldn't care less about climbing the ladder like Muro does. And he just genuinely can't believe that the generals really just they just give this less this they just don't give a shit about the lives of their soldiers. And he lets he lets them have it. Brulard demands an apology to this, you know, to talking back and says, Yeah, I I'm sorry I didn't I'm sorry I wasn't faster about telling you that you're degenerate. And yeah, Kirk, yeah, you're a degenerate, sadistic old man. I and mean, it's, he gives him that great Douglas voice, too. Oh, big time. Like, Kirk Douglas, like, because Kirk Douglas, for the most part, keeps his voice down in this movie. Like, he's, you know, he's famous for being these gritty, very angry uh, characters. And for, you know, this entire movie, he's, a, he's, he's kind of reserved. He's, you know, he, he's a very intelligent guy. And but he's been through so much stuff. It literally, like you know, with the, he's had to go through the battle and this trial in you know a forty-eight hour span, and so you know he finally does explode. Kirk explode into some Kirk Douglas anger. Uh, well, and what he's what he's mad about though, and what gets me is he's not mad that that Brulard is so indifferent about all these men's death. He sort of already knows that. He's mad that Brulard thought. He, that Dax was trying to stop the executions as a way to gain Moreau's job, that he himself was a political animal. He's like more offended by that than anything else. And he's like, I'm going to let you know right now the kind of person I am. And I think that's exactly why they get the immediate call. You're going back to the battlefield. That's a death sentence. Basically, it's like they are beaten half to hell already. And now he's like, Nope, you guys are going back out right now. And he's like, well, that means we're all going to our deaths, boys. You know, I mean, that's that's the look on his face when they tell him that. Oh yeah, and there's and then the the scene ends with this really nice bit where Brulard he breaks down the whole thing because Brulard he's not a total idiot. He knows he, he does hand over. You know, he does talk about Miro. He's going to fry Miro for what he did. But and Brulard he breaks it all down politically and he asks Dax, "When you break it down, what have I done wrong?" And Dax says, "Well, if you really don't know, then I do yeah. pity you." Yeah, it's like, it's like I can't I can't do anything with you if you don't realize that. It's it's sad to think of, but I mean, the funny thing is is we're talking about this movie and it's, you know, 60 years old and yeah. we still live in a world where some people just can't see what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, and they're in incredible places of power. And, sometimes. And sometimes. I mean, that's just how it goes. It's like, wow. But we get this last scene here, and it almost feels like a coda, you know? Because, like, oh, yeah. for me, the movie ends when 
you know, they tell Dax, like, you got orders to go back to the front. And I know that happens after this next scene, but you see a lot of the soldiers, like, partying at a at an inn, and they bring out this captive German girl who later becomes Kubrick's wife, <laughs> uh, I understand, in real life. But she sings, like, this little folk song or whatever, which I, I'm sitting there going, like, well, that's pretty. I have no idea what you're saying. Um, you know, <laughs> something, something about cows and the countryside. I remember very little of any German I ever bothered to learn. But what's neat is that Dax has the orders and he's, he's told, go get your men return to the front. And he decides, "Ah, I'm going to give them five minutes. You know, like they seem to actually be not thinking about what they've been through the last three days or the last, how many ever years they've been in this thing. And I'm going to let them enjoy this before I tell them, basically we've all been sentenced to die now to go back out on the field. Yeah. This scene, Again, like you said, like well, you could have ended, you could have cut to black right on, you know, Dax saying "I pity you," and that sums up the message of the movie. But then, you know, it carries on a bit more to this, this scene. And I love how, like the the guy, these guys in the bar, like you know, like they're they're soldiers, they're about to ship out, they're extremely rowdy, they're ready for some entertainment, like you know, and they see this 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 girl come out, and you know, like you know, if this was a movie today, they'd be screaming, you know, take it off or, or whatever. Like they're they're that kind of uh, uh, spirit. They're and then she starts singing that song, and little by little, they all quiet down, and they go from being quiet down and listening to everyone in the room. We get all these great close-ups of these guys, all, and all older guys, too. Everyone in the room is in tears as, they, as they're humming along to the song. You can see, you know, they're not thinking about the war, but they are all being reminded of their families and friends back home and how there's really a good chance they're never going to see any of them again. And, you know, the the number one thought on any of these guys' minds is just, man, I want to go home. And it is it is one of the saddest scenes in movie history. It ranks with stuff like Requiem for a Dream, where you look at the whole room and you realize it's like, you know, it's, just, it's not going to go well for any of these guys. Half of them are going to die, and the other half are going to be stuck with the images of watching the other half die. And now... You know, rewatching the movie as many times as I have, you know, in prep for this pod, maybe it's lost some of that effect on me, but you let some time pass and you watch it a little fresher, and that scene just, it wrecks me. It's one of those scenes where it's like a small list of scenes where it's like, you know, if you don't cry during that scene, there's, there's, there's something wrong with you. It's one of those scenes yeah. where Spielberg, he said he put the movie on for his friends that had never seen the film, and he might have just put on that scene. And even out of context, the whole room in three minutes were all of a sudden in, in tears. And that, you know, that's how that's how moving uh, the scene is. It's a beautiful ending to what has been a really dour and ugly thing, yeah. you know, for the most part. And I think that's why Kubrick s- stuck it on there. Is that um, he wanted he didn't want to leave people unlike Fincher, who would have left us in the gutter bleeding yeah. and crying um he wanted to leave us with a little bit of hope like love is still there you know kubrick's a love guy as we'll we'll get into uh, later on but uh, no i it's it's a good ending of the film i'm with you they could have just cut to black on on the kirk douglas explosion but uh it's almost better that they don't that there's just that extra little beat that little you know epilogue that, that tells the and this is what became of these men you know and it's it's a fascinating tale again i mean i watch this thinking I, I'm certain this has been a, it could be adapted if it hasn't, but this would be a heck of a like three or four person like play if you wanted to do some you know, oh, yeah. choppy acting and stuff like that. I think it would be pretty interesting. But I think we're at the point of the podcast, Kurt, where it's time to give final thoughts and popcorn ratings for the film. So, what are yours for Pass of Glory? Well, uh, Pass of Glory 
is a film I feel gets overlooked in Kubrick's filmography. Like I had seen like the last five Kubrick films. I'd never even heard of Paths of Glory until I, until I heard about it, like Empire Magazine. And then I, then I finally checked it out and I was like, wow, why don't people talk about this? And it's like, the only reason it's so overlooked is because, well, it, because Kubrick has, that's just the kind of stuff he made. Like when, the, when you make 2001 A Space Odyssey, that does kind of overshadow this black and white 80 minute war movie like Paths of Glory. But Paths of Glory is so, it's, it's amazing. It's one of those movies, like if anyone else made that, it would be their best film. And it ranks really high with me uh, for, with Kubrick movies, and one reason is that it's the most emotional film of his I've seen. I haven't seen Lolita yet at this time, but Paz of Glory is the only movie of his that he's made that can make me cry. And you know, the rest of his movies are amazing, but they're admittedly cold films. And this is Kubrick going for the heart uh, more than the brain. He does go for the brain, but he's really going for the heart in this movie, especially you know that the last, you know, final act of this movie, and he, he hits a bullseye. The entire cast is better than most, you know, 50s movies where the acting can be questionable at times. But this is... <laughs> nice way to say it. <laughs> yeah, and, but, but the acting, it, it absolutely holds up, where if you, even if you wanted to remake this movie, there's nothing about it that needs to be remade. It's like the acting holds up for in 2017. The, the, action, the action, well, the tension of the war stuff is, is fantastic. It's a great encapsulation of what World War, Com- World War I combat was like. And it's also an amazing anti-war film showing you everything that's wrong with war, with you know the, the beginning, middle, and aftermath of, of war. Kirk Douglas gives one of my favorite performances any actor has ever given. Uh, and shockingly, this movie crams so much amazing story, writing, action under in under 90 minutes and doesn't feel rushed for a second. There's not a wasted second of screen time. And it's, it is a shame that Kubrick, it'd be, it'd be, you know, that's just the way his, 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 you know, his films went. But it would have been interesting what the 80-minute version of you know, The Shining would have been like or, or, or so forth. But I'm probably going to be saying this a lot over the course of the Kubrick films. But Paths of Glory really is one of the best films ever made, and it's, it's an extra-large popcorn for me. I agree with you in the extra-large popcorn. I think the theme of this holds up even today. Uh, we've talked a lot about it here on the show, and it, it's one of those that, I, again, I, don't, I didn't know it was a Kubrick film, and I bet you know, four-fifths of our audience or more probably didn't know that either, you know, and, and maybe hasn't even seen it if they do know it. And it's definitely one that I will be revisiting again. And I've told a lot of people about it, having seen it again, and told them, you really need to sit down and spend an hour and 20 minutes with this because it's it's not very long and it, it, it'll grab you quick. And, again, the theme of it is something that still works today in so many different settings. It's such a, again, such a beautifully shot thing. I mean, again, for $900,000 and, and a script and storyline that eh, a lot of people weren't really jazzed about doing, it, it turned out looking great, and the performances are fantastic. I do think it's one of Douglas's best performances, and that's saying something for somebody that's been <laughs> in as many films as he's in, uh, been in. And look, it built a relationship with him. It's why the next film is a Kubrick film, because Douglas called Stanley Kubrick in to come and save Spartacus. 
you know, mm-hmm. and please come and fix this and direct this. And it's, you know, we'll talk about that one next. The, the, you know, we start getting into some of these epic uh, Kubrick films. That one goes 184 minutes. So <laughs> that's, that's going to be a minute to, to get through. But, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I think you've hit on something there, though, that's a great summation of it, Kurt, is that this is a film where if you want to see Kubrick's heart a little bit, I think it's here. I think it was going to be again in what became AI had he have lived long enough to shoot it and Hmm. do it that probably would have been there Um, and it's probably why he and Spielberg got along so well because Spielberg is all heart I mean he just is he's just a big heart Hmm. and I think that's one reason Stanley liked him as much as he did is because he he didn't you know that wasn't him he was an intellectual he was a logic guy in a lot of ways but he had a he had a a soft side too that he didn't show a lot of people and I think Steven was one of those guys that he just wears it on his sleeves and so that's why they got along among other things other than also being incredible artists you know if you will but it's it's a really good uh, just film by itself definitely worth seeing and checking out folks so I recommend it highly extra large popcorn for me I'm excited about talking about Spartacus man because I gotta tell you I've only seen that movie once and I don't remember anything about it because <laughs> I've seen so many sword and sandal flicks we did one way back when me and you and Nick did Gladiator people That's want to right. dig that out of the archives it's one of our it's a good podcast too I'll just go ahead and pitch that out there dig that <laughs> one up folks but I, and I don't know that we even talked about Spartacus in that but I'll tell you what I know about this one so much is there's a movie Tom Hanks did called that thing you do and the uh, Tom Everett Scott the drummer in that movie constantly references uh, Spartacus as like his sort of motivation <laughs> for doing things and he does all this little jazz drum riffing that he calls hi I'm Spartacus and that's <laughs> that, but it, it's at the time when that movie would have been huge and I'm like okay so I asked my dad about that he's like oh man yeah I remember that one that was awesome you know back for its day and I thought okay this is going to be fun to get, see Kirk Douglas in like action prime you know this <laughs> is Kirk Douglas swinging swords and just wiping out, you know, armies and making out with women and all those (laughs) things that we kind of know him for. Um, But this historical drama too that was part of the the war, the severe wars and stuff. So I'm I'm curious to revisit that one. I don't have many memories of it. Yeah, it'll be interesting because it's, you know, it'll be interesting talking about how it's Kubrick as a... uh as just a workman director taking a gig as opposed yeah. to, you know, spending four years crafting a movie from the inside. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's one of those things that, it, again, it's an adaptation from a book, but it wasn't his idea. He got brought yeah. into it because, again, he had the relationship with the star. But it is something that launched him, uh, for sure, because after Spartacus, his I don't think he was ever the same as, as far as the kind of control he had on projects and what he could yeah. move his hands and get made. That movie launched him into Hollywood, you know, A-list gold uh, right. for the rest of his life. So I'd, I'd be curious to get to that one. We've done kind of a couple of the lesser known Kubrick films. And I think we found a, you know, one that's kind of fun and then a real gem in this one. So it'd be fun to see how the big budget, big action spectacle Spartacus holds up the next time we come around. But lots of cool stuff we're dropping around on film strip here, late spring, early summer Folks, I mean, if you've been keeping up on the feed, Nick and I just reviewed The Wraith, with uh, the Charlie Sheen 80s flick, which you, you do <laughs> owe it to yourself to see if you haven't seen that one. And so uh, we did that. We did the Jaws films to start off the first of the year. And Kurt and I have done this one. And uh, we're uh, we're doing some different things coming out here. But uh, one I'm real excited about, Brian and, and uh, Ron and I are teaming back up to do the Scream series, the nice. four Scream films. It's been a while since I've visited those two. And I'm, I'm really interested to talk about those. We've kind of 
done the four other big horror ones. I mean, we did Halloween, yeah. Hellraiser, Friday the 13th, The Nightmare on Elm Street. The only thing left is Psycho, and I don't really know that I want to. I ever want to see Psycho Four again uh, for, <laughs> for any reason other than maybe torture? Um, so because it's it's real bad, uh, but this is kind of the thing that came from all of those in, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And later this year we'll get into Texas Chainsaw and some other stuff. But lots of cool stuff coming again. You can always follow our feed, uh, search for Continuous Play Podcast Film Strip on iTunes and Stitcher. Um, so we're on both uh, avenues now. And of course, you can follow us on Facebook. Catch up with us on uh, Facebook and on the. Baby's Factor uh, film uh, podcast page. If you want to join that, you can request to join the group. And that's usually where we post a lot of our episode discussions, or we just give Kurt a lot of mess for being Canadian and, you know, whatever else hits us for the day. And actually, we talk, we talk a lot about Star Wars over there. So if you're down for that, you know, um, we should mention it here because I've been asked by a few people about this. The Last Jedi trailer, of course, is out now and everything. Mm-hmm. We're recording this in, in you know, April. And it'll be out in April of the year. That movie doesn't come out until December, and I get asked a lot, like, are you guys going to keep doing Star Wars films? And as far as I'm concerned, yeah, we're going to be back for episode eight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. I'm going to go, I'm going to try to do what I did with Force Awakens again. I'm going to try to go in cold. I've seen the trailer once now, and I'm vowing to not watch it again. So, um, well, good luck. I've, tur- I've turned off all my auto video feeds, <laughs> and uh, I'm just trying to shun my eyes away. So we'll see if I can get it done. But uh, we'll be back again for more Kubrick later on. We've got Spartacus coming up, Lolita. That's one. I've never seen that one either, Kurt. I know what it's mm-hmm. about, but I've never seen it. Barry Lyndon, which I don't know anything about. So. Um, we'll, uh-huh. we'll be fun. 2001. We're going to take a sidetrack here, though, because it's not part of the Kubert retrospective, but we can't do 2001 and not do 2010. Sure. Like we, we've got to do 2010. So we'll, we'll throw that one in there, too, and uh, start churning through the Kubrick here as we get on uh, through. So, again, folks, thanks for joining us here on Filmstrip. Until next time, for Kurt, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.